I originally had the idea or the, the viewpoint that if you knew what you were going to do and school was going to help you get there and give you the ability to make more money in that pathway, then go to college. But what I never liked is people who went to college to try to figure it out because most people that go to college take on debt to do so. And if you don't know where you're going, it makes it impossible for you to gauge on if that debt is then good debt or bad debt. And now what's happening with school has just become worse. It, it, in my perspective, it goes beyond the ROI. School is like destroying kids. It's giving them such a bad and ill-prepared viewpoint of the world. And it is setting themselves up to then fail when they go out into it. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams, the one and only Mikey Taylor. Welcome to the Better Wealth Podcast. Thanks for having me, big dog. There's a lot to cover. I first of all wanted to cover a little bit of your backstory because I think some of the criticism you get is like, hey, dude, stick to skateboarding. We met through a mutual friend, Rachel Richards, shout out at FinCon. And the first thing that hit me is you are super abundant. You love people. You have a ton of energy. And so I was just attracted to you as a person. And then I start following you on Instagram, which all of my audience should do. And I start, I start realizing like, dude, you actually know your stuff. You understand this, this thing called debt, real estate, cash flow. And you did a, a survey for your audience that I was like, was so eye-opening to me because I am like very pro debt the right way. Mm -hmm. And you said something like, do you, you believe debt should be used in like, could be used in a good way. And majority of your audience said no. Yeah. And I realized that we want people to be wealthy and, and we, I want you to define that later, but at the end of the day, it's so tough when there's no common denominator. So I just want to be able to communicate and talk about all kinds of stuff, but mainly your story, the definition of wealth, why debt can be powerful, why, what you love about uh, real estate, and anything else that you want to cover on the show. So thank you again for making, making it on. Oh, I'm stoked to do this. Heck yeah. Where, where are we starting? You want me let's, to start let's with the start, story? And normally, I start with how your parents met because that gives oh. me context. Um, but let's, let's talk about your story a little bit because you're known a lot of times outside of the real estate investing world. So I want to talk about that and then I want to translate into the money topic. The thing that changed my life is when I was 13 years old, I picked up a skateboard. And I did it because one of my friends who I thought was cool uh, got one as well. Um, it grabbed me. I became fully obsessed with it like I typically did with other things except this one just never let me go. And, you know, I made it to 16. My parents wanted me to get a job. I didn't want that. So I convinced companies to give me free products. And that allowed me to have everything I needed uh, without having to pay for it. And then I had extra shoes, skateboards, and clothes to sell my friends to make some money. Then I graduated high school, didn't want to go to college because uh, I didn't want to stop skating. And so I figured out a way to get the companies that were giving me free products start paying me. Uh, and I originally thought that was going to last for about five years. It ended up going 15. So I went 10 years longer than I thought. I became a pro skateboarder. And then halfway through my career, I had this uh, kind of entrepreneurial bug hit me. Wanted to start my own companies. Uh, the first company I started was with, with, with two of my close friends. We started a craft brewery in San Diego. Uh, it was called St. Archer. And we ended up selling that company to Miller Coors in 2015. And then from there, I started my current company, which is Commune Capital. And I found my way uh, on the private equity side of real estate. It's interesting because you talk about 
becoming an entrepreneur. Dude, you were an entrepreneur when you were 13. Well, you know what? I, I know. I recognize that now. Uh, but it, it, for skaters, like we don't know what that means. Like skateboarding is very uh, small and it's kind of our own little world. And so I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. Like we had already started St. Archer. We didn't know what entrepreneurs were. We just thought we were starting our own business. That was all. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it came back then uh, when I you know, had to figure out how to make money. Yeah. Talk to me about just the skateboarding community. And there's a lot of people out there that identify as artists that are like creative. And, you know, as a, as a person that looks at wealth, I wouldn't tell someone to pick up a skateboard to become wealthy, right? But what I love is that you took your raw talent, you bought into that you are your greatest asset and you leveraged that. And it's so evident. Mm-hmm. So what, how does that world work? And what would be your advice to, to somebody who is gifted in an area that doesn't necessarily look like there's a lot of potential, but you're a perfect example of how you can take something, leverage it in a powerful way and, and have an amazing family business and, and wealth? Yeah, that's a good question. For me, I rode a wave. I, I, I'll totally acknowledge that. When I got into skateboarding originally, it was like this small. Like yeah. there was zero upside. And then the Tony Hawk video game hit. And then every person wanted to look like a skater without actually being a skater, which was great for us because then they started buying our product and our industry just exploded. So the amount of money that you could make as a pro skateboarder became way greater than it was. Um, so I did get in at a good time. Um, but you know, to really answer your question, um, I tried to figure out ways to add, whether you want to call it more demand or more leverage to myself to be able to negotiate either more uh, higher deals with my sponsors or reach an audience that went beyond skateboarding so that I could then create a product to sell them. So simply put, when I started looking at myself as a brand, it changed everything for me. I, moving from I'm just a skateboarder that wants to skateboard to how can I do my craft and then resonate with my audience, it, it, it took on a life of its own. Let's talk about college for a second. Okay. I think the people are starting to come around to say, oh, wait a second. College, if you look at it from an ROI perspective, a lot of people are not getting a positive rate of return. Um, And yet that's still, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, like, it's like, there's no question my kid's going to college kind of deal. So what would you say from a standpoint of Mikey, what do you believe in college, the pros and cons? How would you answer that? And I know that you have your own kids. How are you thinking about college with their futures? Okay. I'll start with my kids. My kids are going to have to make a very, 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 very strong argument on why they're going to go to college. And if they decide to, they're on their own. They will get zero support from me to do so, unless something changes in a big way. But my viewpoint on college now is pretty bad. It's worse than it's ever been in my whole life. Um, I originally had the idea or the the viewpoint that if you knew what you were going to do and school was going to help you get there and give you the ability to make more money in that uh, pathway, then go to college. But what I never liked is people who went to college try to figure it out because most people that go to college take on debt to do so. And if you don't know where you're going, it makes it impossible for you to gauge on if that debt is then good debt or bad debt. And now what's happening with school has just become worse. In my perspective, it goes beyond the ROI 
school is like destroying kids. It's giving them such a bad and ill-prepared viewpoint of the world. And it is setting themselves up to then fail when they go out into it. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was homeschooled growing up and I was working through college. I graduated in three years, lived at home, spent a total of $21,000 on my bachelor's degree. And so what I was grateful for is it gave me an ability to continue to work, not feel like I had to make money. But there's not one thing that I could point back to college that goes like, oh, this was, you know, this was in benefit. It just gave me three years to figure it out on the business side. Um, And what's interesting is my bar for education and actually excellence dropped because just my competitive nature was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to get through college because I didn't think of myself as being smart. And I was like, oh, if you just like apply yourself, the bar's not that high, but that, that's, I, that was a couple of years ago, man. Like, it's just crazy to see that you're communicating this. I love how articulate you are on this subject. And look, I, I will say this, like everyone should know this. I am biased in some regard because I did not go to college. Right. So I'll put that front and center. But being a parent, that's what changed everything for me. I mean, I mean, we, we pulled our kids out of school. We're homeschooling now. And even this last week, it, it, it's something so, uh, how would I say it? I was given a huge blessing this weekend to, for my wife and I to know that we're heading down the right path. Uh, what the little school that they go to, it's kind of like uh, there's a, a school that holds the curriculum. And then we are kind of given uh, the responsibility to teach our kids throughout the week. Once a year, they do this like farmer's market, right? And the kids have to come up with a product to sell. They create it or buy it. They come to the market and then they sell. And it was so cool because my kids are nine and seven. And what we went through in this exercise was they didn't have enough money to buy the product. They wanted to make these like, uh, what is it? The felt, the garland felt like balls with like a string on it. They didn't have the money to start it. So they borrowed money from mom and dad. They borrowed $200, right? We didn't, we, we'll work on charging them for yeah. that money later, but borrowed money from us. They put in the work to then design the product. They packaged the product. We taught them how to figure out the cost to sell it because they now knew what the cost of goods were. We went to the market. They then had to stop people, communicate why they needed to buy this product. They ended up grossing about $650, right? They both walked away with 200. That little Saturday exercise was more than I got in school that pertains to business going up to 12th grade. And it just shows that things are changing. Like, School isn't doing for us what we need it to do in the real world. And there's way more alternatives to do so. And why I think you're seeing the rise of homeschooling, pod learning, alternative, et cetera. And, you know, college is just the highest form of it. It's, it, it needs to change. Dude, I, I'm getting chills right now because I did something very similar. I, I, my first business, not a lot of people know this. It was called Caleb's Kitchen. Yes. We had, we spelt kitchen with a C and I remember getting a, a nasty gram from a, a homeschool mom that was like, this is not a good trend that your, yeah. your kid's spelling wrong. Um, but what I did was I baked bread yeah. and I would, you know, my mom loaned me the money and I had to owe her, I owed her, you know, certain amount of money for that bread and then I would sell it. And, and I remember, you know, when I was moving out, I, I found like a little envelope and it was Caleb's kitchen. I had like $103 and it just, what I learned is I learned accounting, 
learned yep. how to work, the proactiveness, the selling. Like I'm telling you, if you're a parent listening to this, like put yourself in a, put your kids in a situation where they're selling, they and they're understanding the that nothing's free, and they're understanding how to buy yep. and sell. Like I'm, man, I'm so yep. I'm so proud of you, and I'm so grateful that you shared that story. And look, man, our our takeaway from it was if we can teach them this one component, they're good. They are totally good. So, uh, yeah, I, look, I, and, and I recognize that homeschooling is not easy and, and, you know, it's hard to sometimes be in a position to be able to do it, but if you can, uh, it's been huge for us so far. We're almost two years in. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. I could, yeah. I could spend the rest of this interview talking about parenting philosophies and values yeah. there, but we're going to move on to money philosophy. And so what, what I want to do before we talk about individual topics like real estate and debt, I want to, first of all, ask you, what is the wealth framework? I feel like this needs to be the conversation that a lot of people need to talk about because a lot of people are arguing in bubbles, but they don't like, I want to know what the end goal is. So if you were to talk about money one-on-one, teaching it to your kids, how would you, what are the steps that you would cover in a wealth framework? I would start with talking about what money is and what money isn't. And I would try to start with the end in mind. But in my view with money, the first thing that our kids have to know is that you have to go do to earn, right? You have to create, I don't want to say a forever worker, but they need to associate output or work with earning. And then as they get older, you can teach them about working smarter, et cetera. Uh, on that note, one thing we do with our kids if they want money, they have to do something to get it, not chores, right? And I don't care what the task is. They can take rocks over on that side of the yard and put them over there. I just want them to build that framework of I have to do. And more importantly than that, they need to know that it's possible, right? When it comes to money, you know, you hear people talk about scarcity mindset or abundance mindset, or a lot of people just don't think that they could ever achieve financial freedom. It has to be given down to them or born into a family. That's not true. So you have to create our kids to know that what they go out to do, it is possible for them to do as long as they are resilient, don't stop, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to, for my kids, like the, the viewpoint of wealth that we're trying to instill in them is money gives you option. It gives you freedom, option, and choice. Uh, and that can be really good for a lot of things, but it can't help with a lot of things as well, right? They'll know that uh, money will not bring happiness. Uh, money will magnify things that are already inside of us. So if we struggle with greed, that's going to be magnified when it comes to money. If we give and we want to help others, that's going to be magnified with money. So trying to build a foundation that's solid first and then add money on top of that, great. And then the steps to get there, in my perspective, it's actually different for it's a very personalized path. Uh, you know, some people don't need as much as others to live off of. Uh, some people are comfortable taking more risks than others. But whatever your goals are, which should be set, I think that then helps you create the path on how to go towards where you're headed. I love that, man. Can your 12-year-old articulate the importance of value creation or is that something that will come? Because I, I noticed that you talk about working, yeah. inputs, outputs. You're saying every word but value and you're teaching their, your, them to understand that money follows value. Yeah, that's, that's fair. So my oldest just turned nine. So uh, it, it, what we're going to lead on next is uh, the more value you add, the more money you make. 
Um, I, I, I think I'm just a little bit early on that yeah. one, Walter. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. Thank you. So what might so what so where we're at with our kids for any parents out there, uh, they know that if they want to make money, they need to go do. That's first and foremost. Uh, the things we're working on right now is when they actually make the money, we take 10% and that 10% goes to their giving envelope. Awesome. And then we take the at, at their choice, the percentage that they're gonna put towards their savings. And then the percentage that they're going to put towards their spending and just trying to separate out, you know, what the purpose of these dollars are. When you look at the problem that we have in the world right now, what are some problems that you see reoccurring uh, from a standpoint of like, why are most people broke in the richest country in the richest time to be alive? That's a, that's a good one. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a few reasons. Um, I think one, our perspective of what wealth means has changed, right? Like, you go back to like our great grandparents or, or, you know, people who live through the great depression for them being able to have money to put food in their mouth. That was rich. That was wealthy. They were blessed to have that. Right. And as things started getting really, really good or easy for us in comparison to the rest of the world, our expectations started getting higher and higher. And now what you have is there's a lot of people that make a really good amount of money that view themselves as poor without having framework to look around at the rest of the world and go, that is actual poverty. So I think our perspectives have changed. Um, I think the school system, I, I, there's, a, there's a massive, massive problem with the school system. They, yeah. they don't teach you the things that you actually need to know to do well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's got to change. Um, and then I think a lot of it is based on the school system and the fact that we've instilled or given power to the teacher to raise our kids right. and the fact that they do not teach about money. Well, that means that it becomes the responsibility of the parent to teach right. their kids. And unfortunately, a lot of us are very, very bad at money. We didn't learn about it in school. We don't have great discipline or responsibility right. to manage ourselves. And so we end up passing down this viewpoint of money that is at least through our perspective, true, but actually relative what truth is, it's false. Yep. And so it, it, we're, we're running in this broken system. Right. Has to be, there has to be a big change in it for us to move the rest of the generation. But I think it's happening, actually. Yep. I think as you start seeing the rise of these alternative paths of learning, you'll see more and more people go, holy crap, yep. it, you know, educate, empower, and then go act. Yeah, it's interesting. Money is very taboo, and I am seeing yeah. a, a, a change. And I think social media, there's pros and cons to social media, but I think the pro is it allows good ideas. It allows people to get their message out. And yeah. I think I'm starting to see that people are starting to have conversations around you know, wealth. What does that actually look like? My simple framework of money is know what you want. Cash flow. Cash flow is one of the most important metrics as it relates to money. If you could be a billionaire on paper, but if you don't have cash flow, life's not going to be good. Um, And then separating that there's money can only do two things. It it can be consumed taxes, lifestyle, mortgage, debt, whatever, or it could be saved and invested for a future consumption date. And when you understand that money does two things, we can model that. And at the end of the day, we can make better investments or optimize our inefficiencies. And it like becomes really simple, but yet the financial system wants to complicate it because they want to say, Mikey, the only way that you can be wealthy is to invest in my mutual fund. And, and so I love the, the movements that are going on, but what I find is a lot of people, 
um, know the tactics, but they don't know why they do what they do. And that's what I love so much about what you're teaching your kids is money is an amplifier. And we both know people that money amplifies some really negative behaviors and beliefs. And it's not money's problem. It's um, some deeper root issues. Anything that you want to say before we we jump into probably one of your favorite topics, debt and real estate? Uh, No, I think that's great. It was very well said. One of the reasons I love real estate, and I'm going to steal your thunder, it's one of the only assets that appreciates, which means it grows in value, that can create cash flow, which ultimately, if you know anything about our practice, cash flow is the thing that we measure, that we try to enhance above everything else when it comes to money, is that's the, like, retirement planning should actually be called future cash flow planning. That's right. Okay. Um, You can use debt, which we're going to talk about. It's not always evil. And there's some amazing tax advantages. And by the way, it's not an either or, it's an and conversation on all all of this. And so um, I'm a fan when done properly, but I'm also, I I don't necessarily love the people that read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and say, I'm going to be a full-time real estate investor. And they, you know, they just checking the box. And so I think there's some education that needs to happen. Why do you love real estate? Your business, I want you to share a little bit about what you guys do. We have a lot of um, people listening to this are always looking for the next deal. So I want you to be able to articulate that well. And at the end, you'll be able to share how you can connect with Mikey. Um, So number one, I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about debt because I feel like that will be a a great way to encapitalize this conversation. All right. So uh, real estate, why I love real estate. It's a great question. Uh, I think it started with my parents. Uh, My dad always had... uh, some investment properties, rental properties. And I think growing up, seeing that just, you know, it just felt like that was the path that I should be on. Uh, When I started skateboarding, I had a mentor come into my life at 19 that helped me kind of navigate through the skate industry, taught me about money, how to invest. And he was big in investing in storage units. And when I first invested with him, uh, well, in the beginning, I didn't have enough money to invest in real estate. That's something that we forget that the barrier to entry can be a little bit high, especially if you're investing in a private offering. So for the first you know, three or four years as a pro skateboarder, I had to save my money to be able to do it. Um, at that point, I was, a, I was a beginner. I invested in a storage deal. And all of a sudden, I start getting you know, quarterly dividends. And I was like, whoa, why is this coming in every quarter? I started learning about cash flow. All of a sudden, the properties would appreciate. They might have the ability to do a cash out refi. Now, all of a sudden, I'm hit with this you know, cash distribution. That was a good kind of uh, beginning stage for me to go, oh my gosh, this works. What really changed my perspective on real estate was 2008. And what happened was I owned a primary residence, the home, the home I lived in, and then I owned investment properties. And my house got crushed. I'm looking around at all my friends, crushed. It's just devastation. Storage units, they're just trucking along. And it was the first time I really understood that not all real estate is equal. And it it put such a longer timeline on my viewpoint of investing because instead of me just looking at investment going, I need to make money while I'm in it and get out before something happens. It was, how do I invest in things that will be here for a long time? and then real estate just really became fascinating. But to add to though, it's different though. Like I went from skateboarding into building business, right? And when we raised money for our brewery uh, and sold it, 
we gave a 12x return to our investors in three years. We're talking about massive, massive returns, right? With real estate, the risk has to, the return has to be adjusted because the yeah. risk is adjusted. So being a pro skateboarder or having to invest in something that I could count on when my career ended, real estate provided that. And it provided the cash flow that I was going to need when my sponsor said, later, dude, no more money. And then the appreciation helped me on the wealth build because I was at the stage of my life where I wanted to grow my net worth. So it, it did really well for me in that regard. Uh, I'm a fan of frameworks. And so when we talk about real estate, what is your basic framework on not all real estate is created equal? Obviously, fan of storage units. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not going to guess why, but I can assume. Yeah. What is your basic framework on like if someone wa- is taking notes like crazy, wanting yeah. to figure out what the magic is? What, what a, is the magic? That's a really good question. What, what I should say is uh, not all real estate is the same. And also the strategy that you're going to use can be very different as well. Um, for me, what I look for in real estate is I want that asset to have demand for a long time. I want 10 years of demand on every investment I make. Um, and I'm a long-term investor. So you should know that. Uh, the context I use, uh, let's use like vacation rentals, for example. Airbnb is really hot right now, right? This isn't to say Airbnb is a bad investment. I have a lot of friends making a ton of money at it right now. Uh, using a specific area like, uh, what's a hot vacation? Whitefish, Montana right? Whitefish Montana is heavily vacation. It might be changing, but as of right now, it is, right? Well, in the next downturn, I don't know if Airbnb is going to react like vacation rentals yeah. or if there's a different component to it now. If it's going to act like, act like vacation rentals, it's going to be affected more in a downturn. Uh, condos affected more in a downturn. Yeah. Uh, multifamily does pretty well during a, a downturn. Same with storage. So I want assets that do well through uh, uh, challenging times. Uh, and then also on like short-term strategies, I'm not big on flipping. Uh, and that's and this is not to say anything bad for those that do, not my strategy. Uh, I look at my source of income as the business I'm building. And then when I'm placing money, let's call it passively or long-term, yeah. I want that thing to just truck along. I don't want to only make money if I get in before... Uh, you know, uh, a switch happens in the economy, et cetera, et cetera. I want the tax efficiency. I want the cash flow. Out of growth, cash flow, you know, tax tax benefits. What is the thing that what is the thing that's most important when you're looking at a deal? What's the the most important metric to make a decision for you? That's a really good. That's a really good question. I would say the biggest decision for us is. Uh, Will there be demand for this apartment building for the next 10 years? Yeah. And am I going to get the cash flow that we're trying to get for yeah. the next 10 years? Good. Um, Good. And then anything else that happens in the meantime, I'm okay. If cap rates soften, I'm okay. We just participate in cash flow. There's nothing that forces us to sell. And then we move on. Yep. I, I love that. And it's so f- crazy how our, our stories are so similar. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I won't, I won't go into that because it'll be a long story, but I'm, I have a love for storage units. Yeah. And um, working, I worked at a bank, and so I saw some of the economics of storage units, and it's pretty yeah. insane. Yes. Um, and so that's all I'll say there. Love yeah. the demand. I, I don't hear that a ton, but the, a good test, whether you're starting a business, whether you're investing, is 10 years from now, is this thing going to be like in higher demand? If, if it's that's like a yes, then then it should be um, 
that you should be able to go in with a lot more confidence than, I don't know if this is just a trend that's going to, that uh, something can get shut down. Let's talk about that. Go ahead. ahead. Is there anything else that you want to mention there? What I was going to say is, look, people can make a lot of money in volatility, right? Uh, Just not built for me. That's not how I look at risk. I'm good with risk if I start the company. If I'm investing and, and, and it's not mine, I don't want that type of risk. There's other people that are opposite. So back to the beginning point, I have my path for my personal goals. And this is what I included once I knew where I wanted to go. I love it, man. Let's talk about debt. And what I want, what I want you to be able to do is have a have a, a platform to be able to communicate maybe more than just a what is Instagram? 10 or 15 seconds. I'm not an influencer like you. Um, And so what is your philosophy on debt? We've already talked about values. We've talked about some frameworks. We talked about why you like real estate. We've talked about, you know, that you're not into volatility. So I think we can make the assumption that you're not just, you know, go, go get dead and go on vacation and just live life high. So I want you to be able to articulate your thoughts on debt. And you mentioned something really important that you trained your kids early on to start having healthy. I don't know if people caught that, but I think I love that, by the way. And and so with that, I'm not going to steal any more of your thunder. Okay. Uh, my gosh, thank you. <laughs> uh, my view on debt is there's good debt and bad debt, uh, but I recognize that most people are not taught that. And and why when I do a story asking if debt is good, 55% of my audience says, absolutely not. The end goal is to be debt-free. And look, for those people that believe that debt is bad, then that's what they do. That's the path they're on. And someone like a Dave Ramsey can be very, very influential for that type of person. But in my perspective, it's not the total picture. You have to separate debt through the lens of one debt is made for consumption, one debt is made to increase cash flow and increase net worth, right? And for this side of debt, the debt that you use to buy things that you can't afford, right? That don't be in debt, be completely debt-free. Uh, credit cards, and I know there's people that have a different view on credit cards to me. My view of credit card, I only buy stuff that I can pay in full and I pull that, I pay that thing off every single month, no matter what, right? I was taught that as a kid. But when it comes to growing wealth, debt can be so powerful, but even when growing wealth, debt can take from you as well. So you have to use debt very, very responsibly or know that the risk, know the risk that you're taking in using it. And if you're comfortable possibly losing what it is you're doing, then okay, fine. Maybe you can take on more leverage. Uh, But for me and my group, how we look at debt when we're underwriting an asset, we underwrite it from an unlevered standpoint. What does this deal look like with no debt? And then we look at what adding debt does to the numbers, but we do not use debt to get the return we want, right? And a lot of people will do that. They'll use debt to try to chase a higher return. To me, that's taking a deal that does not work and taking more risk to try to make it to work. We don't, we don't want that. Um, Let's see. The reasons why I like debt, uh, specifically to real estate. One, I can stretch my dollar. I can buy things that go beyond what my dollar can buy me. I can re- uh, increase my return when done right. Um, An easy example to this is if you bought an asset for $100,000, uh, 
and that asset appreciated by 10%, you just made a 10% return on your money. But if you put $20,000 down and used someone else's $80,000 to buy that $100,000 asset and it appreciated by 10%, you just made a 50% return on your money. Now, there are fees and costs, so it's going to be a little bit smaller, but it at least gives you the perspective or the view of how leverage can increase return. Uh, you talked about tax efficiency with real estate. With real estate, even though it typically always appreciates, we're able to claim depreciation of the asset. And we can depreciate the total value of the asset, regardless if we put that total dollar amount in on equity. So we can depreciate using other people's money. Uh, it's huge. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a powerful tool. But again, you have to use it responsibly. Yeah. That's, that's very important, regardless of how you sit on being pro debt or not. Jason Hartman said something on, on this show and he said, debt done properly is a short on the American dollar. And we already know that the American dollar is getting less and less valuable. <laughs> and so that's, it's like, that is, that's an interesting concept. Um, yeah. There's a couple of things that you said that I just want to follow up on. Um, okay. you, you first of all talked about you wouldn't buy anything. So I would, I'm assuming that you wouldn't buy a car if you didn't have the cash to pay for that. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't spend something on a credit card if you couldn't pay off that credit card every single month. And you also underwrite your deals in a way that it has to make sense, even if you don't use leverage. So I appreciate that is you're being consistent both on consumption and assets. Uh, is there any, anything else that you want to mention there? Because I, I appreciate the, that philosophy. And, and then we can go one step further and say that in your worldview, your debt should only be an enhancer, but it shouldn't enable any decision pers on the personal side or the asset side. Thank you for that. Yes, <laughs> that's it. Yep, exactly right. So one of the one of my philosophies this is how I explain good debt versus bad debt is good debt not only should enhance your net worth and cash flow, but it should reduce your risk. And here's what I mean by this. And a lot of people are like they they see debt or they see leverage and they assume risk. If, if we have any option traders out there that use options well, you can create strategies that can create more, uh, more opportunity for upside and reduce your chances of loss. And how do you do that? You use leverage. Um, my philosophy, real simple, is you know if you have a 30-year mortgage, I could mathematically show you that you could have more cash flow, a greater net worth, and reduce your risk because banks hate lending money or bailing people out that don't have a job, right? Yeah. So would you yeah. rather have money that you could tap into or a paid off house and not be able to buy groceries? That's a fair view for it. I agree with that. You, I mean, um, you have, because I'm, here's, here's what I would say is this is where debt is, becomes bad is when it enables you, when it's an enabler to buy a house that you can't afford yeah. or you buy a car that you can't, you know, a buy, but I'm actually a big fan is if you know that you're going to buy a car and it's going to be a $15,000 used car, if you can get it, if you can get a loan on that and, and the co conversation is, what would you do? What was the opportunity cost of, of taking that money that you would be paying cash and reinvesting it? Great. Yeah. The problem is America doesn't reinvest. They spend yeah. it. Yeah. And that's where Dave Ramsey does have a valid point where it's like, Hey, you just pay cash for everything. You're not going to make dumb decisions. And most of America is not becoming wealthier, they're just spending all the money. So it's really difficult 
because you're dealing with people that you could be giving them the textbook right answer, but you know that behavior trumps any type of, you know, textbook knowledge. I 1000% agree actually with everything you just said. That was a, I did have to learn that actually. Like once I started talking about finance on social media, it was so eye-opening to see how many people understand it, people who don't, and then who struggles with the behavioral side. And that is really important to note. And so when I say like, you know, for, for what you just said, instead of buying a car outright in cash, why don't you finance it for freaking nothing and use that money that would go totally into the car to invest in another investment that's going to produce a higher return than the interest you're paying, capture the arbitrage, right? You're correct in that. But when you add the behavioral side to it, and yeah. now here becomes the challenge, if you struggle managing yep. your bad debt, yep. then going and trying to manage you know, an investment strategy where you're paying debt, trying to capture more return to do so, I think I'm at the point where if you haven't mastered the behavioral here, don't yep. try to do it here, right? Um, but you're accurate. Like, right. That is the correct view. Yeah. Right. So here's just one final thought is there's, we really, when it comes to decisions, need to be breaking this up into two, two decisions. Decision number one is should you buy that car? Should you buy that house? Should you invest in that asset class? Yeah. We need to make those decisions without using leverage, without using yeah. debt. Because if the answer is, yeah, I can afford that house if I max out my debt to income ratio, you know, yeah. no. So we need to have a, a framework and a decision based on should we invest in these assets? Should I buy this car? The second decision should be, what is the most efficient way to purchase that? My, my favorite def definition of efficiency is eliminating all friction, time, energy, materials to get a desired result. Yeah. But the problem is, and this is where I give Dave Ramsey a lot of credit, is we're not taught to separate those two, two decisions. Yeah. And so it, it becomes, it, people don't do that. And so, and trust me, man, I, I'm in a dilemma as well because I wrote a book on life insurance. We, we work with people all over the country and help them put money into life insurance. You want to talk about a product that's like 99% really bad? Yeah. And yes. so I cringe when people use my yeah. book or use some of the stuff that's be like, hey, see, like, this is how we, and then they, they don't do anything what I teach. Yeah. But it's like, so I, I struggle with that. And it's like, that's why I appreciate Dave Ramsey's message is really consistent because at the end yeah. of the day, he wants to, he's the group of people that he's talking to are yeah. like deep, deep, uh, have problems and really they should cut up their credit card and they shouldn't do any of the stuff that we do. So I, I have empathy. I don't know if you have any final thoughts on, on that subject. I agree with you. I totally agree. I'm, I'm like, look, I, I have a completely different philosophy than Dave Ramsey. I, I think he's wrong in the total picture. Yeah. I really, really appreciate what he's doing though. Really, really appreciate it because he's, he's changing people's lives and putting them in a better position. Uh, that's massive, man. That's impact. So I will never say anything bad about Dave. I won't eat him up. We just, I'm help, I'm trying to help one group and he's helping the other. Right, right. And yeah. one, one thing I, I'm working on that I admire Dave is his ability to communicate and his ability to wake people up. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of people that have better marriages, have kept their marriage, have yeah. businesses today, have yeah. a net worth today because they heard his segment. And so Dave, I know I've been critical on you in the past. I do appreciate you and appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, Mikey, anything else when it comes to real estate, debt, 
family, business, oh, how to start a brewery 101. Anything else you want to jam on? Oh, that's good. Something that we struggled with, my wife and I, uh, as we started, uh, once we got married, was I always separated what I'm doing from investing, investing to communicating that to my wife. It was two different things, right? Babe, you and I are running the household. I got the investments. I got the business. That was damaging for us. It really was. So something we found that really changed our marriage was including my wife in all of the decisions we were going to make that had any type of risk element. So when I wanted to do something, babe, this is the opportunity. I want to pitch it to you. I want to see what your concerns are. And let's get to a point where we're making decisions together because if these investments do not go well, it's impacting your life, my life, and the kids' lives. And that was huge. But more, more importantly, she felt included with what we were doing. And it became a true partnership, like a marriage should be. That was huge for us. Uh, the other thing on the personal finance side, two date nights a month going over the budget. So huge, right? First Wednesday, third Wednesday of the month, we have dinner, we grab a glass of wine, sun muds, it might be a scotch, and we <laughs> go over our budget, right? It's like the first Wednesday is yeah. meant for us to you know, somewhat go over how the month was prior, but it's really to tell our dollars what they're supposed to do that month. And then the third Wednesday is accountability. How are we doing? Do we need to pull things or change things, et cetera? And it's been massive for us. Um, so communication is key always. Money is one of the biggest reasons why couples get divorced. So make sure both of you are included regardless if you like money or not, right? Usually you have one person in the family that's good with money. The other one's like, I don't want anything to do with it. Push yourself, force it. It's kind of like working out. It's shitty while you're doing it. You don't look forward to it, but the results are huge. Yeah, so, so many things that you said there, the importance of communication, uh, the importance of tracking your money. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, when you track it, you control it. And I just think bringing, yeah. you, if you bring a heightened awareness on something, my goodness, man, it, it's, it's powerful to see that happen. That is, that is something that my wife, I've been married five months, so I'm, I'm not- Oh, congratulations, <laughs> boom. And it's something that we're trying to be intentional about, not just on the money side, but just how we're spending our time and what we're doing, I think there's a lot of benefits that come from that. Thank you, thank you so much for sharing that, Caleb. I'm gonna I'm gonna add to it if you don't mind. Okay, yeah, please do, I man. Just, I love I just this. Thought, I just thought of something that yep. like my wife gave me three weeks ago. That was massive. Most of us view budgets as like you know all hell is breaking loose. <laughs> we need to control something. Do a budget, right? Like yep. it's the idea of we don't tell money where to go; it goes where it wants. And the yep. end of the month, we're like what's going on? So typically, when we do a budget, it's we're overspending, an unexpected thing has happened. There's transition, it's typically painful. And my wife gave me such a cool analogy. Most of our views of a budget would be like, we're going skydiving. And we get in the plane, we fly up there, we're holding the parachute, we jump out of the plane and have to figure out how to put the parachute on before we hit the ground, right? It's a very high anxiety situation. As opposed to, being on the ground, packing the parachute, putting it on, getting the little thingy on your wrist, jumping out, totally different experience, right? That needs to happen with how we do a budget. A budget needs to be, or looked at through the lens of, this is for me to accomplish my goals. Yep. This is for me to accomplish financial freedom, and this is my plan to get there, not, holy crap, everything's falling apart, do a budget. 
And so when you tell your wife or your husband that you guys need to do a budget, do not present it in the panic mode. Right. She or he will remember that, hold on to it, and it will take you years to break through that viewpoint of a budget meaning pain. I think proactiveness is something that pays massive dividends. And that's what you're doing when you're spending time with your wife. And that's what you're doing by creating a budget, a spending plan, wherever you want to call it. Um, I just get when I hear budget, I feel like it's like diets and it makes me want to like puke inside. But but you're right. The proactiveness is like, what are you doing to make sure that you're being intentional with what you're spending? Yeah. Speaking of the word intentional, our our definition for wealth is intentional living. Just like for our company, we get really clear on what people, what does an intentional life look like? And that my humble opinion, retirement, we could talk a whole about, about the definition of retirement. Like you don't want to be the horse that's retired. You know, nope. um, I don't think we, sh- the goal should be retirement. I think it should be to live an intentional life. How would you define intentional living for you and your family? Living in our purpose. Which is? My purpose? Yeah. My purpose is to glorify God in everything I do would be my purpose. Um, and when you add, whether it's me talking with you, it's other friends, my relationship, my wife, how we raise our kids, how we do business, how I manage money, every single aspect of my life, I want it to be done in a way that when I die and get to meet the creator, he looks at me and says, good job. Well done. Well done. And so that, that, that's the lens in which I, I view my whole life. How, how do I try to live to my purpose as the best, best of my ability? I love it. With, with that, how can people connect with you? How can they get involved in, I, I believe you raise, you raising money, there's opportunities to partner with you on certain deals. Um, and then I just think everyone should follow you on Instagram. If you're active on that platform, I think you'll be blessed greatly by Thank the work you. that you're doing. Thank you. Um, so I'm on all the platforms. If you search Mikey Taylor, uh, I think I'm verified on all of them. So I'll be the first one to come up. I do a pretty good job responding to uh, whether it's DMs or messages. Um, it just might take me a little bit. So give me some grace. Um, as far as the company, um, two of our three portfolios we are raising money for right now. Uh, we're raising money for our storage portfolio, but we are getting close to wrapping that up. Uh, and then we have uh, a good amount of deal flow in our multifamily portfolio. So we're, I think we're going to be raising money for that for a little bit here. If you're interested in that, uh, you can send me an email, uh, Mikey at communecapital.com, uh, and I'll show you what we're doing. And I just have to say this, just to over-communicate, I do not endorse these investments, but I do endorse Mikey as a person. I think he's phenomenal. And I think what he's talking about as far as cash flow goes, I think think it's like, unless you're going to go in and do this yourself, I think you just have to really take an audit of where your unique ability is and, and spend your time. We talk about asset-based activities, spend your time and money helping you live more intentionally. And I love the work that you're doing, man. Um, final question. Mm. This is your last day on earth. You're with the people that you love the most. You can't give them any, anything that any book video, you can't give them this podcast you only have one last conversation with them. What are you going to make sure to highlight in that last conversation? I'm going to highlight that the life on this earth is very, very small in context of eternity. And that God has given us the ability to have a relationship with him after we die. And that was through his son, Jesus Christ. And that in my perspective is the most important thing we could do. 
Uh, and that would be the message I would communicate to them. God loves them. Uh, he wants to have a relationship with you. All you have to do is choose it. Mikey, thank you for being such an incredible human being, father, uh, investor. I, I'm excited to see what happens in your very, very bright future. Grateful for our friendship and look forward to seeing uh, what the future holds. Thank you, big dog. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.